Welcome to Disarming Leviathan. My name is Caleb, and this podcast is designed to equip you to reach American Christian nationalists as a mission field. Today's interview is a little bit unique. It features my counselor, Phil Herndon. We're going to talk a lot about what's going on inside of the heart and soul of our mission field, which is similar to what's going on in the heart and soul of pretty much every human. Uh, And I believe that this episode in particular will give you some insight into how the emotions and feelings and needs of uh, people that we love are being leveraged by American Christian nationalist leaders and organizations who use rhetoric and fear-mongering in order to stir people up and beget allegiance and money and stuff like that. So uh, I believe that this will really be a blessing and a gift to you. Uh, Phil, real quick, he is... Uh, has served as a pastor uh, in Texas for 15 years. He joined the Center for Professional Excellence in 2005, where he served as the clinical director until 2020. He then became clinical director and co-owner of the River Tree Center in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, where he lives with his wife, Sheila. Uh, without further ado, here is Phil Hearn. So talk to us a little bit about how anxiety and fear are working in the hearts of the hearers of American Christian nationalist leaders. Yeah. Well, I think, Caleb, first of all, we probably need to make a distinction, a brief distinction between the two. Fear is a really natural thing, natural feeling that, that we've been given, I believe to be God-given, that lets us know there could be danger. That's, you know, good old healthy fear is what motivates a pilot to check the plane before it leaves the ground. It's what motivates you to study for sermons before you preach. Um, So, you know, healthy fear says pay attention to what's going on around you, because if you don't pay attention, it could lead to some really bad stuff. And so the healthy aspect of that is like, yeah, pay attention. What are people saying? How we have wisdom and discernment to listen when Caleb preaches I want to have a healthy sense of fear to like, is what my pastor telling me, is is that true? And so I'm listening with the sermon and, you know, I know you will have to know the answer is yes, but if people don't know you and they go, hey, I need to check this out, which is wisdom, like, sure. So when we ask questions of curiosity, when we check things, when we study, that's healthy fear. And so often, Caleb, when it's something like this, in terms of, you know, the, even the phrase Christian nationalism you say that to one group of people or one person, it means one thing, and they have all these warm, great feelings about it. You say it to another group of people, and man, their, their fear goes out the top of their heads. And so even the phraseology around that. So simple, healthy fear says, I could be in danger. Let me pay attention and cry out for the help I need. Anxiety is when I'm not paying attention to fear. Let me give you this. It's, it, this is formulaic by design. Uh, there's a three uh, abbreviations for when, when, when I say deal with fear. It's just I-E-E, identify, explore, and express. If I can just identify it, hey, that I'm scared when I hear that. Explore it. Like, what's scary about it? What's the story there? What does it remind me of? What danger am I afraid will happen? And then I express that to someone that I trust. I express it to my friend Caleb. He does that with me. Then that's that's dealing with fear. So when you hear someone say that, that's what they're really saying. Deal with your fear. So call it what it is. Explore what it's about and tell somebody. That's the three kind of ideas around that. And when I don't do that, 
my body will take over and attempt to handle the fear. Now, we know the common physiological uh, results of anxiety, Caleb, like, you know, my pulse rate goes up, I sweat, my heart races, I may get lightheaded, I set my jaw, I get a tension headache, GI distress, or all kinds of joint pain. There's all kinds of these physiological symptoms. But what's happening there is my nervous system is reacting to my heart not dealing with my fear. And so what happens in the body is well documented, but what happens internally in this part of the brain called the limbic system where feelings and intangible experiences live, it starts doing things like obsessing. If you've ever seen a hamster in, a, in one of those balls that run around that ball, I get a ball like that around me and it insulates me from the scary world. And so anxiety, it's acted out often in physiological symptoms, but it's also acted in obsession, worry, fretting, even manipulating other people. Uh, so anxiety is a really powerful agent that my body says, we're going to do something. The nervous system says, I'm going to do something to protect you from this perceived danger. And so we notice that for many people who are listening to American Christian nationalist leaders or rhetoric, they are, they're animated, oftentimes they're animated, yelling, screaming, their bodies will kind of puff up when they're talking about these things, their face will scowl oftentimes. And these are people that, you know, we're, we're sitting at our dinner table having a conversation and they're talking about something that they heard or that some leader told them and we can see those things. But there's also like, like, how is that being stirred up? You know, if, if uh, you and I have talked about this before, if a bear walks in the room, we should feel fear. And that's a <laughs> good feeling. And that helps us navigate what to do next. But there's something else like the anxiety piece of constantly assuming there's a bear around every corner and seeing every bit of evidence, you know, every little piece of fur. It's like, oh, that's bear fur. And is that what's going on inside of the people that, you know, are sitting across from us at our dinner table? Yeah, Caleb, you're, you're talking about a, a thing called hypervigilance. And anxiety makes a promise to us. And the promise is this. If the worst happens, you will at least have the power of having seen it coming. And so that's the hypervigilance. And that's manifested in hypervigilance. Everywhere I look, I see someone threatening my country. I see someone threatening my way of life. I see someone who's blind to how great we have it and they're trying to destroy it. And so that puffed up, you see, there's an old, old worn out slogan in psychology that says, I will pace the floor. And if that doesn't work, I'll pound the desk. So when the face gets red and the puff, puff chest comes out, that's a, a raging type reaction. Like my anxiety is going on. I'm hypervigilantly looking and listening to every syllable for someone to say something that a lib or woke or whomever the other faction would say, in the minute I hear it, I'm going to get on top of that thing because I'm already building up to that. I may not even know it, but in my hypervigilance coming from this anxiety, I'm listening for it in ways I don't even know I'm listening for it. And the hypervigilance says, no, I'm always listening and watching because the minute I see any danger whatsoever, like you noticed, I'm on the trail and I see a patch of hair that was actually from a dog someone had on a leash that's a mile ahead of me, I'm assuming bear because if it is a bear, I'm going to see it. And if it's a dog, no harm, no foul, but I'm going to assume bear till proven otherwise. And so that, that spurt of what you're 
talking about is a rage experience coming out of anxiety because in my anxiety, I've been hypervigilant and I see something that my hypervigilance needs to pounce on. And that's that puffed up reactivity you're talking about. So one of the phenomena that we frequently see in our mission field is boycotts, canceling, and it's usually around some word or phrase. So for instance, right now, Target is being, many American Christian nationalist leaders are saying boycott Target because they've got LGBTQ. And that just those letters in order sends up uh, a signal flare that's the response is puff up chest, pound desk, demand retribution. We've seen this in, in other spaces, Disney, uh, most recently uh, Chick-fil-A, which has historically been Christian chicken is now a heretical chicken. Um, egg and poultry evidently is now what it's become. And so we, because they have, I believe it's called DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. They have someone who oversees that in their company. And I'm witnessing the messaging on social media and in some of the news outlets, DEI, you know, Chick-fil-A, DEI. And just those things put together is being met with this Oh, they're communist. You know, it's it's the dog hair on the trail that's being interpreted as bear hair. However, what's interesting here is the leaders seem to be cultivating that message. Oh yeah. How does that work? How how are leaders uh, of any movement in a position to cultivate anxiety or to try to push people to these hypervigilant spaces? How do they do that and why do they do that? I'll tell you how they do it. Those are super good questions. By the way, only Caleb Campbell would come up with pagan poultry. I just need to say that. (laughs) (laughs) Trademark. Trademark. So good. Yeah, copyright that. Um, I think those are key questions, Caleb. And I think they're fairly simple, yet there's complexity around them. We'll go to the why first. If I need power, one great way to get power is to press on a wound to get reactivity. And so if you want, if, you know, if you and I are in some kind of competition and you've seen it in maybe any sport, but comes across, you know, in boxing, which is a violent example, but if a boxer sees he's opened up a cut somewhere, he's making a beeline for that. And he's going to literally pound and pound away on that cut over his left eye because that's a soft point. And so, When people who want power, the the best way to get power and to guarantee I'm going to continue to have the power is to keep putting my thumb in those raw, sore places to get reaction. And so I can say a key phrase and people will often get unhitched from there's theology around all the things you're talking about. There's scriptural statements and passages about what you're talking about. But that gets we get disconnected from what the truth is from my reaction to it. And so the, the people who are in power like that, they, they leverage human reactivity already in a hypervigilant state. For instance, if you and I are on the trail and I know you've got, you've got yourself a big bear phobia and you and I are hiking out here out, outside Phoenix somewhere, and I know you're really afraid of bears, like really, really tied up in it, and I see the dog hair one way I can get you really dependent on me is go, Caleb, I think that, look at that hair right there. That's like bear hair to me. 
And so because I know you're walking around with hypervigilance already and all I have to do is point to some point to fur LGBTQ, DEI, et cetera. All I've got to do is point to that and I'm going to get a reaction out of you. And you're automatically on that hiking trail going to be more dependent on me because of how much more afraid you are. And so you're hiking with your friend, Phil, and I have said, oh, no, Caleb, look, and I know it's dog hair, perhaps. Or even if I don't know it's dog hair, I've seen it. You haven't seen it, but I'm going to make sure you do so I can make sure you get more hypervigilant and more anxious, therefore more dependent on me to make you okay. And so if you have a YouTube channel and a e- email newsletter with a donate button and you, you've started a new 501c3 nonprofit to sell bear repellent spray and for a generous donation, you can get <laughs> me some, it would be in your social and uh, economic interests to leverage that anxiety within me. Mm-hmm. And this could be done on anything. And of course, I, uh, you're familiar as, as well as I am that there are many people who serve in my vocation as clergy who can leverage things like hell or God hates you. But if you're on our team, the right team, mm-hmm. uh, we can win and, and I'll promise you safety, belonging and purpose. Yes. And, and it operates, Caleb, you know, you know, the data is, you know, bears can literally maul and kill someone. So there can be some even baseline accurate data but it's encapsulated in the rest of what we've been talking about. And that also gets leveraged. And so many within American Christian nationalist circles will accurately diagnose things that could be corrupting or destructive or hurtful, but their prognosis, what they prescribe usually is allegiance to me as the leader and give me money, give me your, you know, your total devotion and I will lead you to safety. And so in that sense, instead of like a physician, they're pointing out things that need to heal or need to be attended to. Uh, They're pointing to things and then demanding your tribal allegiance, usually for their own power. So the effect on, you know, our mission field is they've, they've not only had their anxiety stirred up and a lot of fear mongering has led to that. So they're in a heightened state, hypervigilance. They're also putting their trust or their hope in the tribal leader who's going to keep me safe from the bears. So if I, as you know, a friend or loved one, ask the question, are we sure that there's a bear on the trail? Are, are, are you sure that that's not just dog hair? There's usually a response that is sharp and critical and how dare you question and you don't know what you're talking about as if I've somehow insulted them or called their humanity into question. Why are they responding that way to me or to us when we ask the question, is this really as bad as the leader says it is? Yeah. Caleb, you're landing on a really far reaching dynamic. You're, you're nailing that even with your question, because what happens is notice what you ask earlier, puff chest lashing out, Well, those are, we talked about that that kind of lashing out is an outgrowth of unaddressed fear, which turns into anxiety, which turns into this rage thing. Well, it goes the other way too. If I have a really high investment and I'm I'm, I'm in the bear repellent business, or I have a really high investment in you remaining afraid, 
because I really need you on that trail to be dependent on me. If you begin to have your own thoughts, if you begin to have an identity that's separate from mine, if you begin to ask questions because you're kind of looking around and going, you know, I've actually never seen a bear here. I mean, I was born and raised here. And you begin to question that I get afraid. And so I can't let you know that my fear is about you're not being dependent on me anymore. And so the same thing that's happened earlier, we talked about, I now I'm anxious and I may become hypervigilant going, man, I'd give anything for a bear right now. And I'm looking around for any sign I can find to see the bear. So I'll create a bear. There's a squirrel scurrying around the woods and I'll go, Caleb, what did that sound like to you? And so I'm look, I'm now hypervigilant, but if nothing happens and then you continue to open your big mouth and dare question, you think there are bears here really? Cause I don't remember any, then I'm afraid. So I'm going to lash out and go, Caleb, you're trying to get us killed or I will make sure that you remain in a form of hypervigilance and anxiety so I can get rid of my anxiety and remain in this territory where my hypervigilance is centered on making sure you stay in your lane, quote unquote. And this dynamic definitely becomes more complex when you take the two people hiking on the trail and now you're a tribe of 100 anti-bear association Mm -hmm. and in a tribe of a hundred anti-bear associates, uh, one person begins to ask critical questions. What does a tribal leader do to that person? Yeah, that gets into our, our human proclivity toward kind of a, I guess you would call it a, a kind of an ongoing assumption about humans. If you imagine just two circles and inside one circle, it says desire for connection the circle right beside it, you have the words fear of rejection. And so you get into a group of 100 bear people and I have a desire for connection. That's Genesis chapter two. That's what God breathed into us, relationship. And so I really desire that in and on. That's a chronic condition of humanness. I want connection. Another chronic condition is called I fear not having that. So once I get into my tribe, whatever the tribe is, once I get into that tribe, I live in such a way, if I stay in my lane, I don't have to worry about being rejected. I'm saying the right thing. I'm believing the right thing. I'm giving to the right cause. I'm going to the right meetings. And so that's no big deal that I don't have to worry about. So I'm just concentrating on that one circle. I have a desire to be connected. I'm connected around this this one central tenant here that we're under siege. But when I start having feelings of my own, maybe I start to feel real life, healthy fear, like, gosh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure this is best for me or I I don't know that I know some really good people who don't think this way. And I wonder if they have a point or two on the way when that question gets asked and that that circle that says fear of rejection starts growing uh, and the connection piece begins to go away. A really smart. I'm not saying godly necessarily, but a smart leader will make sure that person gets under threat of that connection being broken. And what is the worst punishment a human can ever have? Isolation, solitary confinement, to be put outside the camp, ostracism. So that plays into that voice inflection, arch of an eyebrow, openly shouting down sometimes, things like that. that that's making sure that that desire for connection 
does not ever get questioned because your biggest fear, the fear of rejection, I'm going to make sure that comes true because you've got 99 sets of eyes looking at you and, and none of the eyes look like they're in a very good mood. And so I'm suddenly disconnected from my tribe. And that's the worst thing I can imagine. And so we have this deep, profound need to belong, safety, belonging, and we find ourselves belonging to a community. And then we ask questions that might be critical of the community's leaders, the tribe's leaders. And in an unhealthy environment, tribal leaders threaten you with exclusion. And so I, because I cannot be excluded, I need community. I'm, I'm willing to overlook uh, what might be deceptive, what might be incongruent, what might even be downright evil. Uh, I'm not incentivized at all to ask questions because I need to belong. And so tribal leaders will usually flex this and, and hold this power over people. One of the things that you've taught me is that true safety inside of community comes from being able to ask any question. Mm-hmm. without fear of rejection or expulsion. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think that for those of us that are missionaries, we can do some of our best work, not in addressing bad thoughts and opinions or broken statistics or uh, bigoted or racist hate speech in our mission field, things that they're all exhibiting. The real core work is in creating a hospitable environment in which this outraged person can find that they belong, mm-hmm. that they can say whatever the thing is that's going on inside of them without fear of rejection or expulsion from the community. That's really mm-hmm. where I believe that the local church has a huge role to play in this because oh, man. the local church has all the tools needed to receive busted up, broken people in to community centered on Christ. And because we're centered on Christ, there's no fear of rejection or expulsion from the community in healthy churches. Yes. Phil, you you have talked about even seeing this in families. And, and one of the things that, that we see in our mission field is perhaps because they're afraid of being rejected from their community, Mary, many people who have given themselves to American Christian nationalism will work diligently to explain away blatantly evil or broken behavior of their leadership. Many of us, those of us that are listening, many have had the experience where uh, a loved one who otherwise has shown themselves to be a person of integrity, kindness, graciousness, they love the Lord, their church every Sunday. uh, They, you take like uh, Donald Trump, for example, um, has said things that are blatantly to anyone looking uh, ungodly and antichrist. And you'll hear this person, this loved one, who, again, otherwise has exhibited Christ-like behavior, not just address the statements or the behavior, but start to excuse the behavior away in order to validate it, validating blatantly evil behavior. What is going on inside of a person that would cause them to try to excuse away evil behavior in their leaders and, and perhaps even tether that to uh, children of addicted parents. Yeah, Caleb, there's a there's a name for what you're describing in the recovery world. It's called ACA syndrome. It stands for Adult Child of Alcoholism Syndrome. And there's a, it's called colloquially, it's called a laundry list. There's a list of 14 characteristics of an ACA, of an adult child, a shortcut way of saying that. 
And what happens is, let's go back to the feeling of fear for a second, kind of where we opened with and we said fear, fear has a gift and, and the gift of fear is wisdom, as we said. Well, well, the need that gets exposed with fear is I have a need for refuge. And so whether it's, you know, former President Trump or whoever it is, the leader, the tribal leader, he or she or this organization has provided what I've always wanted. I'm afraid I've always wanted refuge. And when I cried out, people would say you know, about my country, this tribe, this person, this spokesperson answered and provided refuge. And so, you know, it, it becomes like, well, this is the thing that has saved me from insanity. This is the thing, the person, the idea, the philosophy that has given me an identity. And you, you touched on this earlier, Caleb, you said the need to belong, like the need to belong is to be appreciated or to be accepted for who I am. And so you come into a, a tribe as you've as you called it earlier, like, man, they accepted me. And maybe part of my story is I've never been accepted anywhere else. I was a nerd or I was this or I was that. I was disenfranchised. And I came into this tribe and they didn't care about any of that. They were just glad I was there. And then the need to be significant or the need to matter, that need is to be appreciated for what I bring. And so if you look at an addictive family, let's just use alcohol as an example. A child growing up in an alcoholic home, ACA, they carve out a way to survive. They carve out a way to be accepted for who they are and to be appreciated for what they bring. But what they bring is an ability to uh, use euphemisms or to perform or to keep the secret or to redefine what things really are. Oh, you know, dad, sometimes dad gets really sleepy. Well, dad's drunk. Or sometimes dad just gets in a bad mood because of work pressure. No, dad's in withdrawal. And, and so children will learn to call things what they're not because the, the thought of calling things what they are, you know, Martin Luther said pure theology is calling a thing as it actually is. And so the rules in an ACA family is you don't ever use plain language to describe what's really going on here. And so that becomes my way of being part of the tribe. I find ways to talk about things that don't speak to what's really going on. And so I take that, take that and transfer that over to this nationalism thing that's going on. And I've learned that when I go in here, I say certain things in a certain way and look at certain people in a certain way. You're, you're touching on something super important, Caleb. We, we give a lot of attention to, man, people who are neck deep in this. They look at other groups of people or other types of people and, and think these things about them, assign these qualities to them. It's also happening with the leadership, just like in an addictive family. And so what I have assigned to the sickness of my family, I will carry that slogan forward and that will be the mantra I live by. Because internally, if I grew up in an ACA family to go outside the family or even inside the family and say something contrary to the narrative gets me thrown out. And so I learned to use euphemism and I learned to use generalities to describe anything that would suggest that there's something different available to me because I can't get out of that system, else I won't survive. And so if you have a Christian nationalist leader who claims to follow Jesus and love their country and speaks in dehumanizing or violent ways against immigrants, 
what we may find in our mission field is that they'll excuse that away by saying things like, oh, well, they're a baby Christian, or ah, that was quoted out of context, or the liberal woke media is misattributing that quote to somebody. What can't be true is that the leader did something evil. Because if I say that or believe that, I, my belonging in the community is now under threat. Mm-hmm. We even see this in talking about America. If a person loves their family, they're able to openly and honestly in a healthy family speak about the evils in the family and the family lineage and the family history. Uh, unhealthy families bury it and act like it's not there. You're not allowed yes. to do it. America is a people group with a history. And to openly criticize evils that have been done in the name of American expansion or in the name of liberty and life and the pursuit of happiness, to openly criticize those things like Manifest Destiny or Chattel Slavery, Jim Crow, openly criticizing those calls the integrity of these nationalistic leaders under threat. It makes me feel scared because if I speak ill of my country, who am I? Because the toxic leaders that I'm a part of have cultivated an environment in which you don't speak ill of the family. And Mm -hmm. that extends out to this kind of imagined history of America. And misinformed nostalgia is a very real phenomenon in our mission field. In fact, I, I, I argue that most American Christian nationalist leaders have weaponized nostalgia. We we hear it in the language of make America great again. And that again piece is speaking to some kind of thing that's going on in my heart that I maybe remember or not. Talk to us, Phil, about nostalgia. What is it and how is it operating in people? I'm going to say something sounds funny. Nostalgia on an emotional level is a failure to grieve. And, and I'll tell you what I mean by that. I was having lunch with a dear friend, <laughs> this is years ago, and we were talking about, actually, we were actually talking about ACA syndrome. It's another clinician. And, and I said to him, look, man, I just want to go back to the way it never was. I said, what, what, wait a minute. He said, no, no, you said it. You said it. <laughs> he kind of stopped me like, no, 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 <laughs> just keep it right there. Like, uh-huh. oh, man. You know, Freudian slip joke, you know, insert Freudian slip joke. But that was really true because here's what I know. There are super wonderful, fantastic things that happen in life. I know that. There's super wonderful, fantastic things about our country. I love our country. And I have read some of the things you've written, Caleb. You write so beautifully about, my goodness, <clears throat> yes, I love the U- USA. And I'll, I'm, I am proud to be an American, like the song says, I, I am. And, and th- that also means it needs to mean I can tell the truth about my family. And I'm using air quotes that you can see, but uh, I can tell the truth about family. And to go back to what you said, when I go back the way America was, there were some great things there. And there were also some things like Jim Crow and like other forms of racism and like all kinds of other things that were going have gone on in our country that if I'm in a healthy family country, I can say those things too. And it's simple as saying, and not, but like, and, and to to continue the family slash country uh, metaphor, healthy families say, you know, my dad, for instance, my dad did some real damage when he was not dealing well with 
so-and-so. And he was overall, it's really great. He had a great wit. He was a, he was a kind man. And some things were done and said that I wish had not happened. And so nostalgia, true nostalgia, remembering, having a sickness, an aching for the way things were, is wonderful. That's part of looking back and saying, you know, there were some good times then, and there were some times that were not so good. And these are some things that could continue to be looked at and told the truth about. And so so if we look back and we, we really emphasize that last A, make America great again. If we, if we're concentrating on the again, we are embedding in, if it wasn't for them, America would still be great, but they did this and now it's not so great. And I want to get back to when everything was really, really great and to failure to grieve. Scripture is really clear. There are wonderful things on the earth and, and it is not ultimately what we're made for in this form. So really, Christians who love Jesus will will forget that and say, yes, every era of mankind needs to have the truth told about it. But pure nostalgia, as you said, weaponized nostalgia makes sure that I don't grieve some things that have been fundamentally sin here. That's good. And we see that too. And for those of you listening, you can see this in really pronounced ways like the MAGA slogan. But you can also see it in iconography and art and imagery. And I would just encourage you as you're in the homes of American Christian nationalists or those that have followed it or give themselves over to it, as you're in the homes of your mission field, just notice the icons, the images, the, 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 the movies. Uh, they're all singing the same song about go back to the way that it once was, the golden era, the golden age. The, and you'll, you'll even hear it in people's, the way that they tell their stories. You know, uh, oftentimes, Phil, I've heard people say to me, you know, when I was growing up, first of all, there's always this prideful piece of how hard they had to work at school and something, you know, how they never had anything handed to them in their whole life. Yeah, that's part of the talk track. But there's also this nostalgic thing of like, well, when I was growing up, we didn't worry about like sexual deviancy. Mm-hmm. It's like, dude, what are you talking about? <laughs> are, what are you uh, seriously? Uh-huh. Uh, you know, when I was growing up, we could walk two miles down to the, uh, the, the thrifty and get an ice cream cone we didn't have to worry about getting abducted and you know when i was growing up politicians told the truth and when i was growing up eating vegetables was easy like it's just this crazy (laughs) what are you talking about you know for for people maybe of a younger generation it's like what are you talking about that that can't be true but we just want to point out they may really believe that they're not trying to be deceptive but they formed a the way it never was has become the way it was. Yes. Your mind and imagination. And then, of course, that's going back to how we started the podcast with if we could just fight this enemy and protect ourselves from the bear, we can get back to safety, belonging, and purpose. And that's what's going on, seems to be what's going on in the heart of many people who are giving themselves over to this Leviathan uh, that's making false promises, leveraging. Uh, creating fear around the core needs that people have. Phil, just as we kind of finish up our time together, these are people that we love and we don't want them to be sick. We don't want them to be 
constantly sweating and angry and anxious and yelling at the 12 year old's birthday party. Uh, we want reconciliation. Our, our hearts are for their flourishing. Recognizing that what's going on is not facts and opinions, but deep heart level feelings and needs. How do we best care for people who are still in uh, these tribes, these communities of Christian nationalism? And, and how do we care for people maybe who are in the process of coming out of that? Yeah, Caleb, I told you before we started recording today that just some things that you've written, I just so love your your heart personally and the heart behind even this podcast. Like, you know, this is a mission field. And, and I may go on a you know, a classic mission field to a people group who neither know nor care about Jesus. And, and there are certain things that I would know going into that, that it's, it's my job as a missionary to be able to contain some things that are going to go on in that culture that rub against everything I hold to be true or virtuous or pleasant. And so I would really encourage listeners to to remain in that stance and there's a there's a phrase in human relationship it's called containment and part of parenting dan allender sent some great work around this and he said you know we part of good parenting is being able to contain the big feelings of children when they're having feelings about something and that doesn't mean you don't have any boundaries it doesn't mean that aunt betty or uncle fred gets to come to my house and rant and rave in front of my children and knock things around and those kinds of things. We're not talking about a lack of boundaries, but true containment is, Aunt Betty, you you can have your feelings about this and I can contain it. I can absorb it. I can sit with you in it. And I want you to know, I, I have some questions of curiosity there. That word is used a lot these days, Caleb, in kind of counseling circles, but it's a powerful word not even being curious about the issues like we're pretty clear where the aunt betty's stand on all these social issues but to say to really speak plainly to them and go aunt betty i would love to have a relationship with you that was not defined by these things and i also want to be able to talk about the world we're living in and so to be able to have the uh, uh, i'll just call it a missionary mindset like i'm going to have to have a really big container and it may not be fair, but having initial conversations with, with Aunt Betty may require my container to be a whole lot bigger than hers. Like she may be able to contain three sentences from me, and I may need to contain 300 from her at first. It's exactly what I would do in the mission field. And so to have that mindset to walk in with those conversations, and that that's if she's kind of still there. And I think we're going to have to be patience, the definition of patience, Caleb, is bearing the burden of hope. So as a missionary, people go to the mission field and say, I will bear the burden of hope. There may be one person come to Christ in seven years, but I'm going to stay here in this country, in this people group, because I'm called to it. And so if we can have that staying power to bear the burden of hope, have a really big container, especially on the front end, and really be curious about relationship and to be able to maybe even teach Aunt Betty how to use the word and. I think this may be a great policy at the border. And you think that's a great policy at the border. So can we just have this? And that's, that's different than agreeing to disagree. That's a truce to where we're not going to talk about certain things. Being able to say and to one another is not a truce to not talk about it. 
it's a way we can talk about it structured. And so to even be able to teach her, not, not top down pointing at her or Uncle Fred, but to say, let me, let me ask if we can do this and then get ready to have a 300 gallon container when hers is three or his is three. That's the first thing. The second thing, if the feel, it's called limbic resonance, if the feel of the room or the feel of the relationship is Uncle Fred or Aunt Betty really want to modulate this thing and kind of maybe come out of some of that world, that's where these needs for belonging and mattering come in. And, you know, Caleb, you're a terrific, by the way, but you're, you're a Bible teacher and among other things. And this story in Luke 15 of the prodigal son, it's just such a story of, of the joy of despite the data, like every data point about this kid was, dude, sorry, man, you squandered your money and I go, go figure it out. Everything the story says that. And the picture of this patriarch running with his tunic pulled up, greeting that boy and not hearing anything about that, but you belong and you matter. I'm so glad you're here. And I so appreciate what you bring to this. My son is home. My son was lost and now is found. And so if we can remember that, that, that if this is a mission field, we contain things from people living in that culture because that's the way to reach them. And secondly, when they begin to see and maybe return to the family, so to speak. And there, last thing, I guess, it's not so much an Uncle Fred or Aunt Betty have to change what they believe about our country. It's, can I be in relationship with them? And so we missionaries don't go to the mission field making sure they start eating with forks like we do and they like our movies. <laughs> it's the, how, how can we be in relationship and you come to know Jesus and you get to have your own feelings and your own thoughts and your own everything else, but we can be in relationship with that. That's what we're really after. Missionaries are after introducing people to Jesus, letting God do his work and having really big containers and having to bear the burden of hope and deal with my own fears as I'm doing that with them. That's so good. And I love how you framed patience as bearing the burden of hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, bearing burdens is how we love our neighbor as ourself. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the foundational texts for this ministry is Galatians 6, 1 and 2, which says if, if anyone is caught up or entangled or ensnared in transgression or evil, mm-hmm. seek to restore that person gently, gently and watch out for yourself lest you too be tempted, right? Much 98% of all this mission work is in my heart, not in their head. Mm-hmm. Watch out for yourself, lest you too be tempted. Therefore, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And so the next time you're sitting across from a loved one or a coworker or someone in our mission field and you're filling up your 300-gallon container, you're bearing the weight of that. And by just receiving it into your container, you are shouldering the burden of hope that one day they will be disentangled or de-ensnared from this evil that's got them in its grasp. Mm. And that's the hope. And uh, it sucks and it's hard (laughs) and (laughs) it feels impossible. And yet that's the role that we can play and be like Jesus to our mission field as we invite them to turn back to Jesus. So, Phil, thank you so much for your time. Where can people find you and your work? Uh, yeah, it's rivertreecenter.com. We're in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. 
I know I talk like I'm in Phoenix, but I'm, I'm not. <laughs> and, uh, River River Tree Center in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Love love to help how we can. Cool. And also, you 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 still keep your MySpace account up to date. Right? <laughs> uh, MySpace, and I sent a fax the other day. I, it's amazing technology. You may check that out. It's like the real thing, only a facsimile, right? Phil, <laughs> thanks so much for being on the show today. Appreciate Enjoy it, Caleb. It.